According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. We're taking our third and final look at this sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. She has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. Remembering, of course, that the only reason we can love God is because he first loved us. That the basis for her love is the forgiveness she has received. She is a born-again believer at this point of time. She did not get saved because she anointed him. She anointed him because she was saved. And this is a response to the grace that has saved her. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each believer is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of assembling together. We realize it is a grace opportunity. We don't deserve to be here. You've provided it for, uh, provided this for us out of your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying and teaching your word. And we ask that as the word goes forth this morning, that it would not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We do ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Sinful woman, we've dealt so far... We ended up with a uh, wonderful amount of alliteration so far as it goes as we deal with the affair, what was the setting for this event, the affair where this uh, event took place was a dinner party. And we, we commented upon how you and I ought to be looking for occasions, affairs, opportunities, settings in which we can testify for Jesus Christ. And it may be as part of what we were discussing in our evangelism class last Sunday. Uh, finding ourselves in locations and circumstances where questions are asked or comments are made or some other indication takes place that clues us into the fact that there is a work of the Holy Spirit taking place, that the person we're looking at has been uh, convicted, he's being drawn, and there's some kind of grace in action that's preparing this person for gospel hearing. And if that's a question being asked or uh, some other form of observation where we can uh, be clued into the fact that the Holy Spirit is working, we know that that setting then is our mission field. And we have that as an opportunity. And this is the nature of it. And, part, and we'll be back in there again next Sunday night as we discuss the difference between, I think the terms that were used were active versus passive. And, uh, and I've been chewing on that since Sunday because things do seem rather passive in a lot of respects. But that's the nature of evangelism for every born-again believer in Jesus Christ. We all have that responsibility. So the affair was a dinner party. Secondly, we looked at the actors involved, the uh, Simon the Pharisee and this woman who was a sinner. What a contrast. What a contrast between the one who thought he was special and the one who knew she was saved. And that's uh, a tremendous contrast. We'll have it again and again and again throughout the gospel study. The uh, parable of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. And they have uh, quite a different prayer life compared to, you know, compared to one another. One of them had a legitimate prayer life. The other one was not. As we understand it, those prayers aren't even, aren't even heard, aren't even answered. Thirdly, in our third observation, the seven of these we're getting at out of this text, is the anointed the anointed. And we looked at verses 37 and 38 as she applied the oil. 
So there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. She was properly oriented to the Christ, whereas the Pharisee was not. The Pharisee was looking at the Christ with a critical eye, passing judgment, as if you know it was up to him to determine whether these things were appropriate or not, whether the uh, Jesus was, was worthy of his attention, worthy of his devotion. Whereas the woman, on the other hand, uh, knew that he was not only worthy of her devotion and love, but her worship and everything else that she could offer. We did a lot. There were some sub-points there, and I think it's vital that we at least recognize the first three that she learned where the Savior could be found, that uh, she came to the Savior with a costly gift, correctly prioritizing earthly and heavenly values, and that she also observed an opportunity for service, recognizing that he still had the dirty feet, that the the hospitality was not there, that the host of this this dinner party was not uh, offering the appropriate hospitality there, not providing for his feet to be washed, she finds an area of service. And this is also an opportunity. When we lead someone to Christ, we're going to realize that that sense, maybe we've been saved too long, and, and that sense of appreciation and that sense of, of, of wonder that we're not going to die and go to hell, that he has redeemed us, that he has loved us, then comes this response then or a desire to, to serve, a desire to, to uh, function in that way. We ought to be at least aware of that and let a brand new believer know, hey, here's something you can do. Now, you don't have a lot of teaching at this point, so the first thing you need to do is get in Bible class and start the process of growing. But while you're in that process of growing, nothing will help you grow faster than serving. And you learn ways that you can come alongside and you learn ways that that you can be a a blessing to fellow believers, ways that you can edify. And it might be something simple. I mean, you don't need a huge theological background to to wash feet. Right? She doesn't need to attend a whole bunch of Bible classes and get a theological degree to serve in this capacity. There's a lot of ways that that brand new believers just saved this morning, they can find needs and ways to to minister and serve and and ways to come alongside and help in in a local assembly particularly. What a difference. Now, when we contrasted her with the annoyed under point four, it was quite a contrast because he was really rather miffed at the whole process that she was even in his home in the first place, that she was touching Jesus and and rather in a disapproving fashion he started to jump to his conclusions and we read about him here in verse 39 when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and and we don't even we're not even given his name until verse 40 when Jesus answered him Simon I have something to say to you Uh, up till now we're just knowing him as Pharisee 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 we don't know his name but Jesus knows his name Jesus knows everything about him So when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Who and what sort of? Who and what sort of? This was the the Pharisee's approach, that uh, Jesus doesn't know who she is, because if he did, he wouldn't let her touch him. Now, he's, he's got some faulty logic there because he's starting with these assumptions, 
that because he would never let this woman touch him, he assumes that obviously Jesus wouldn't or any true prophet wouldn't. You realize where that's a, a flaw in the logic? He's starting with that as an assumption and based upon that, everything else is colored. He already has his prejudices. And this is why we want to be on guard because we all have them. We have certain prejudices. And I want to be able to maybe break us of some of those prejudices as we treat the scriptures fairly. I have to stop and realize every text I look at, I look at a text and immediately I say, well, okay, on a dispensational basis, this is what it is. Then I stop and say, wait a minute, let's look at it and for the moment take off my dispensational lens and realize what does this text say? How would a covenant guy look at that text? See, how would a dispensational guy look at that text? How would a reformed guy look at that text? How would a Roman Catholic look at that text? How would a Jewish uh, Old Testament perspective look at that text? And just to make sure that we're being fair with a particular text and we're not allowing our prejudices to then color what we're, uh, what we're dealing with. Who and what sort? Who and what sort? Interesting vocabulary, not only for this study, but a lot of other studies that, uh, that we could get into. We won't necessarily get into it, but this, this whole attitude that he has here of classifying people. You know, what kind of person is this? It, we're warned against that in uh, the book of James and elsewhere. You know, local churches, we can't show, shouldn't show favoritism to anybody. They were doing that, and James took them to task for it in the book of James. They were showing preference to wealthy folks when they came into the church. Uh, but the, the poor folks that came in were kind of shoved to the side or pushed to the back. They weren't welcomed with the same grace or the same attitude. And in the book of James, they were just totally condemned for that that's not there's no part of the church for that kind of prejudice for that kind of distinction interesting that that's what really sparked the methodist church we had a presentation on methodism uh, a couple nights ago at the scout troop and that's what sparked a lot of of uh, attraction to the methodist bible studies that were taking place that eventually became a methodist church because the working class, the, the lower classes, weren't welcome in the Anglican church. The Church of England was, was very much a church for the upper class, church for the nobility, church for the wealthy. And, you know, your, your laborer or craftsman or lower class and certainly your, your uh, dregs, I mean, your street folks and your other kind of shady folks and whatnot, they had no place in the Church of England. And part of the, the appeal of John Wesley and George Whitfield and others was they just went out into a field, started preaching under the open air, and people that were hungry for teaching had a chance to hear the gospel and hear Bible teaching and so forth. And I thought, what a contrast. And that's what we're seeing played out here. What sort of person is she? Well, she's not the sort that he would have into, her home, into his home. But she's exactly the sort that needs Christ, that needs salvation. And so we, we see the, uh, the reality of it here. All right. Under point five, we looked at the analogy. And here I, um, I didn't write the slide number down. Let's just guess at it with that. How about that? Nope. Slide number 18 is the analogy. And I love what happens here because Jesus Christ does the same method that Nathan did to David. Remember, David... Committed adultery, thought he was getting away with it. Uh, committed murder to cover up for the adultery, thought he was getting away with that. And then Nathan comes to him and he says, i got a story for you. And he tells him this story. It makes David mad. He says, that guy's got to die. And that's when Nathan had him hooked. Because after he had it out of David's own mouth, he says, bingo, you're the man. Okay? 
Well, Jesus Christ is using the very same instructional technique here with prophetic uh, urgency, with, with a, I, you know, you can think of it as a prophetic uh, parable, and he's convicting this Pharisee. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And this is in response to the thinking taking place. Remember, this is all thinking in verse 39. He said to himself, that's thinking. Nothing's verbalized, nothing's out loud. If this man were a prophet, he would know. Okay? So he's thinking, he can't read minds. He doesn't know who this woman is. Well, Jesus, as a spirit-filled prophet, says, Simon, i got something to tell you. <laughs> you know, you don't think I can read minds, huh? You don't think I know your heart. You don't think I know her heart. You don't think I know these very thoughts. If he was a prophet, he would. Jesus Christ is saying, guess what, buddy? I am a prophet. And here is what the point you're missing. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Now, he says, look at this woman. It's just like Nathan saying, you're the man. Jesus is saying, she's the woman. And you're missing the point here. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my head with perfume. So there's three indicators that she loves more based on what she's been doing, that she's been forgiven more or she understands, she has a capacity to understand her forgiveness. This Pharisee does not have the capacity to understand either his forgiveness or his need for forgiveness. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And it all comes back to his lack of capacity to appreciate his need for forgiveness. Because, see, in his mind, and this is where the parable really uh, convicts humanity of our, of our uh, relative standards. If you think about your sins, can, can, you, can, you, can you classify them? Can you, can you quantify them somehow? And say, and relate it like he does here with uh, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Are, are human beings really on a scale of, of, of debt? Where certain people are, we'll just call them, you know, 500 denarii sinners, and some people are 50 denarii sinners. Is that a fair analogy? As far as our need for redemption, our need for salvation? Or are we in Adam? In which case our debt is infinite and none of us can repay. Okay? That ought to be our understanding. Okay? That we're all, you know, forget 500 denarii, we're all 500 billion denarii sinners. None of us can repay. And so the, the, the provision of salvation then is a complete uh, pardon, a complete and total pardon. All right? <clears throat> the problem, though, is that in our humanity, legalism will start to create a scale of better than or not so bad as. 
Okay, sure, okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not so bad as this other sinner. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because the moment you get that mentality that says, okay, I need forgiveness, but I don't need that much forgiveness. (laughs) Right? Yes, Jesus died for my sins, but you know, it really wasn't that much. Because I wasn't that bad of a sinner to begin with. I was all right, or almost all right. That's the flaw. And that's a mentality, actually, that will hinder someone from, from understanding the nature of the grace gift. Because we're all in Adam from the moment of our physical birth. We're all infinitely lost. So the whole attitude there. Uh, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, he who is forgiven little, again, that approaches it from the legalistic human perspective. He doesn't think he's been forgiven from very much. He's been forgiven little in his own mind. He's been forgiven little. Okay? And that destroys his capacity. So there's the, uh, the analogy. Now, the absolution. This is where we left off. The absolution. Do we know what absolution is? Got any kind of a Catholic background? Anyone? <laughs> when you go into the booth, the little two-party phone booth, and you, the thing goes up there and you confess to your priest, all right, he will offer you forgiveness and absolution. And uh, he does that from his mediator standpoint as a priest. Um, over you because you can't obtain this without the Roman church, without your priest offering you this absolution. This is a part of the Roman theology that denies it is finished, that views that you're at your necessity for penance and the things you can do in, with your Hail Marys, with your gifts you can give to the church and other things that you can do, uh, then the priest can provide for you your absolution. Now, not only forgiveness, but then your cleansing and restoration to Catholic Um, fellowship well here's Jesus Christ forgiving sins and I love this particularly for those idiots out there that claim that Jesus Christ never never uh, professed to be God never professed his deity so he says for this reason I say to you her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little then he said to her your sins have been forgiven See, he doesn't stop to ask uh, Simon if he's figured out yet what he's talking about. He just immediately turns. He said what he has to say to Simon. He's got the answer back from Simon. And then he just turns to the woman and assures her of her salvation status. He says to her, your sins have been forgiven. Didn't happen just now. He doesn't say, I'm right now forgiving you of your sins. Your sins have been forgiven. You're already a forgiven one. You're already a believer in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. And so, what a release. Not only knowing that you're forgiven, but knowing now that you can walk in the newness of life. Knowing now that you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Not See, a lot of folks... Here's the the second snare. they've, They've gotten past the first snare, that is feeling so guilty about their sins that they don't think they can be saved. The second snare is, after salvation, is still feeling so guilty about your sins that now 
uh, you want to almost make it up to God after the fact. You really want you that, that guilt, that, oh, you know, thank you for saving me, and oh, I was such a horrible sinner. Then you, you carry that guilt beyond your salvation. So that's the second snare where the, the sin guilt can, can nail a person. You can't pay for your sins ahead of time to earn your salvation, and you can't repay for your sins after the fact to make it up to Christ for giving his life on your behalf. You can't pay at the time, beforehand, afterwards, or at any time. For your sins. It's finished. He paid it all. And so uh, when you have that assurance, it's a remarkable uh, provision. All right. The love, step point A, the love that the woman demonstrated was evidence of the faith she had already placed in Christ. This is not the moment of her salvation. She's a born again believer when she walks in the door. She has, previous to this incident, understood the issue. Understood the Christ is coming. Understood in the sense of an Old Testament believer. Looking forward to the coming Christ. Looking forward to the coming Christ. And then identifying Him when He appeared. The love that the woman demonstrated was evidence of the faith she had already placed in Christ. It's not her... It's not her uh, deeds that saved her. He tells her that in verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we can walk in that newness of life. We can walk with a relaxed mental attitude. There is nothing more liberating than grace. She has the opportunity now to to thrive in in a grace orientation, the Christian way of life. So don't get confused by the deeds that she did, the works that she did of washing his feet and anointing his feet and the things that she did there and the kissing and, and, and the, those were outward manifestations. But the reality was her faith that, that accomplished the salvation. Your faith has saved you. The Lord's forgiveness of sins is one of the clearest implicit statements of deity to be found in the Gospels. This is overlooked by a lot of people. Pharisee didn't overlook it. <laughs> His dinner guest didn't overlook it. The Lord's forgiveness of sins is one of the clearest implicit statements of deity to be found in the Gospels. So verse 48, he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this or who is this man who even forgives sins? Now, the word man is an italics. It's not a part of the Greek, but it's understood. It's just simply the demonstrative. Who is this? And you can supply this one, uh, this individual, this person, this fellow, this man. You can supply any noun you want there or just leave it without a noun and just say, who is this? All right, who is this? That's pretty common in Greek. It is, uh, although the, the demonstratives, this and that and these and those, they can be either masculine or, or feminine, because this is masculine singular, it's uh, pretty common to render it as this man, because the this there is, is a masculine singular this. Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? It's a statement of deity. 
Because remember, all sin is against God. God is the one with the absolute standard of righteousness. Now, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. We can say that he sinned against her husband, Uriah. The fact is, he did not. Uriah does not have the absolute standard of righteousness. God is the one with the absolute standard of righteousness. That's why David in Psalm 51 can say, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he committed an earthly offense against Uriah. He wronged Uriah in terms of a human wrong, a human offense. But I really believe we want to be, we want to be distinct in our vocabulary and limit the, the term of sin with reference to our violations against God's absolute standard. And we want to find another term, whether we want to use offend or we want to use injure or we want to use uh, some other term that relates to the human realm. Okay, Because you're, you're doing both at the same time. You're sinning against God, but you're also offending or injuring uh, your fellow man when you do it, when he murdered Uriah. Well, that was an offense against Uriah, wasn't it? <laughs> it was also an offense against Bathsheba, the murder of her husband. In any event, um, the sin is against God, the offense is against man, if we, if we draw distinctions in that vocabulary. Uh, so forgiveness for sins obviously comes from God, but then there's also the procedure of reconciliation where we want to go and, and make restitution. We want to uh, seek uh, the restoration of fellowship. We're going to need human forgiveness in, uh, in various contexts, depending on what's been done. And it might be the fact that the forgiveness from God comes immediately upon our confession of sin, but forgiveness from man, that might take a while, depending on the maturity and the integrity and the, and the love and the, the uh, graciousness on the part of the party that has been offended. Anyway, that's a whole other story there too. But we have this this uh, issue here that your faith has saved you, that the forgiveness comes contemporaneous with the salvation. So we realize this is talking about phase one. Uh, this is talking about accepting Christ as Savior. This is talking about uh, becoming born again, transitioning from death into life and so forth. This is her, he's referencing her past salvation moment and how it's now being reflected in her, in her love. Right? In her love. Finally, let's get the application. The application. We're going very well on this. Actually, I'm going to read three selections and then uh, you guys will get out early today. The application. Where do we want to, where do we want to take this passage for us today as church age believers? There's... Three quotes I'm going to give you. Schofield, Edersheim, and McGee. I don't anticipate you'll be able to write down any of them. <laughs> so you can simply listen. Schofield made some wonderful observations here because he commented upon how this passage is the book of James in a nutshell. He made a note regarding justification by works and justification by faith. And obviously our saving to be born again is justification by faith. But then comes, after salvation, a non-soteriological justification, a justification by works that is then the evidence of our faith. Those are remarkable notes, so let me click it and we'll look at it. 
If you have a Schofield reference Bible, then you have this as a note in your text. And this is his note at Luke 7:44, where Schofield says, uh, "See James 2:14 through 26. We're very familiar with James 2. That's the faith without works is dead. That's where he says, you know, show me your faith without works, and by my works I will show you my faith. All right." We're familiar with that passage. We've had teaching on that passage. In fact, John Nemola gave us a whole, uh, uh, about three hours on that passage at the pastor's conference we had here back in 02. It's been a while now, hasn't it? So see James 2, 14 through 26. When Jesus would justify the woman in the eyes of Simon, he points to her works. For only through her works could Simon see the proof of her faith. See, that hasn't earned her anything, but it is the demonstration of what was already there. And that's the whole point in James 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? This isn't a soteriological context. This is in his daily walk. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And this is the whole application here in in James chapter 2. And so what Schofield is saying is that in the eyes of man, who's observing deeds, who's observing uh, the outworking of a person's faith, they're clearly, they're gonna, they can't see the heart, but they're going to see the fruit. By the fruit you shall know them. And so the justification that takes place there is not the, the salvation justification that Romans deals with. It's the, the experiential justification where in the eyes of man you view the outworking of the faith. And so, here in, in uh, Luke 7, this was Schofield's comment on it. When Jesus would justify the woman in the eyes of Simon, he points to her works, for only through her works could Simon see the proof of her faith. But when he would send this woman away in peace, he points to her faith, not her works. What a difference. See Titus 2.14, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, or Titus 3, 4 through 8. His own works can never be to the believer his own ground of assurance, which must rest upon the work of Christ. See Matthew 7, 22 and 23. And then he has an assurance note at Isaiah 32, 17 and Jude 1. Anyway, remarkable notes there appreciated from uh, the Schofield uh, Study Bible. Then Edersheim made commentary on this. I tell you, between Warren and myself, if we haven't hyped Edersheim well enough, <laughs> if you still don't have a set of Edersheim, I, I, I'm not sure why. All right. It's good material for the isagogics of, of this, uh, this time frame. Chapter 21 in his life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. And this is good to read on a devotional basis alongside, you know, Edersheim is not God-breathed and inspired. It's not scripture. It's not, you can't take it as, as inerrant or, or without error. Uh, but it does provide a, 
a commentary on the life of Christ with the, uh, the elements of the uh, society and the culture and the, the things there that we need to understand. The precise date and place of the next recorded event in this Galilean journey of the Christ are left undetermined. I commented upon that already in this uh, introduction. It can scarcely have occurred in the quiet little town of Nain. Indeed, is uh, scarcely congruous with the scene that had been there enacted. And yet it must have followed almost immediately upon it. We infer this not only from the silence of St. Matthew, which in this instance might have been due, not to the temporary detention of that evangelist in Capernaum, while the others had followed Christ in name, but to what may be called the sparingness of detail in the gospel narratives, each evangelist relating mostly uh, only one in a group of kindred events. In other words, part of what we've always talked about, why does Matthew leave certain things out? Why does Mark leave certain things out? Why does Luke leave certain things out? But other indications determine our inference. The embassy of the Baptist disciples, remember when the John the Baptist sent those two disciples, undoubtedly followed on the raising of the young man of Nain. This embassy would scarcely have come to Jesus in Nain. I mean, clearly it took time. Word of that miracle in Nain had to get to the prison where the Baptist was being held, and then he had to send those disciples to wherever Jesus had moved on to at that point. It probably reached him on his farther missionary journey to which there seems some reference in the passage of the first gospel, which succeeds the account of that embassy. The actual words uh, there recorded can indeed scarcely have been spoken at that time. So this helps to set the stage. I'm going to talk about the chronology of it here and why Luke puts it here. Let me get down to this event. When he starts dealing with this woman. Because it was not only... John the Baptist, who heard about all these things having been done, this woman heard about all these things having been done. This woman who was looking for the coming of the Christ heard of all these things being done. And just as um, the Baptist then sent his messengers for more information, this woman then goes in response. So now this talks about the Jewish rabbi. I apologize, I thought I had this uh, better bookmarked for the section I wanted to read. All right, the first impression on our minds is that the history itself is but a fragment. You know, we've got a dozen verses here, and this is only a small part of everything that took place at this feast over the days that he was there and, and exactly what this woman's story is. We must try to learn from its structure where and how it was broken off. We understand the infinite delicacy that left her unnamed, thankfully, <laughs> all right she's a sinner so are we doesn't matter who she is we don't have to know her name appreciate the grace that leaves those things anonymous so we understand the infinite delicacy that left her unnamed the record of whose much forgiveness and great love had to be joined to that of her much sin and we mark in contrast the coarse clumsiness which would uh, which without any reason for the assertion to meet the cravings of morbid curiosity or for saint worship, has associated her history with the name of Mary Magdalene. Comment on that last week as well. The, the morbid curiosity that wants to know all the nitty-gritty details about this woman, and was she a harlot, and was she Mary Magdalene, and, and was Mary Magdalene a harlot? In fact, Mary Magdalene is not even introduced till the next chapter. So how could she be Mary Magdalene in this chapter? And even when you look at Mary Magdalene in chapter 8 and verse 2, uh, seven demons have gone out of her, but that says nothing about her occupation or how... Um, how, you know, 
You look at those demoniacs. They're foaming at the mouth. They're flopping around. They're throwing themselves in the fire. They're haunting cemeteries. They're doing all this other stuff. Doesn't exactly seem to be a very attractive harlot. If that's if she's a prostitute, if she's got seven demons, you know, like legion and breaking chains and doing all this other violent stuff. I, I don't know. That doesn't seem to be very. Uh, just doesn't seem to be conducive to any kind of a profitable uh, career in in harlotry. Now. We don't know that she was Mary Magdalene. It doesn't matter who she is. Yet the two narratives have really nothing in common, save that in each case there is assignment. Oh, yeah, also the, the uh, folks that try to relate this episode to the one immediately prior to his death, where it's Mary, the sister of Martha, in the home of Lazarus and Simon, where, uh, where he's being anointed there. A lot of people confuse, confuse those two episodes. Now, the imitation of Simon the Pharisee to his table. This is, I think, where I wanted to pick up my reading. The imitation of Simon the Pharisee to his table does not necessarily indicate that he had been impressed by the teaching of Jesus any more than the supposed application to his case of what is called the parable of the much and the little forgiven debtor implies that he had received from the Savior spiritual benefit, great or small. In other words, we can't assume that he is a believer. The parable is designed to teach a, a contrast of two that had been forgiven. And it teaches a contrast of two that had been forgiven and two that then expressed love. If Jesus had taught in the city and, as always, irresistibly drawn to him the multitude, it would only be in accordance with the manner of the time if the leading Pharisee invited the distinguished teacher to his table. So in other words, here, whatever town this is, whatever village, whatever location this is, a, a visiting teacher comes in, he's teaching the, the law, he's teaching the Bible, the Old Testament, and as a, as a visiting teacher then, this is customary for the, for the, uh, the local teacher, the local rabbi then, to host him. Say, you know, when a visiting pastor comes to Austin, for example. When a Hugh Crowder comes to Austin or a Bruce Einspar comes to Austin or one of these other pastors comes to Austin. Well, guess what? This is this is my jurisdiction. You're you're in my room, my realm. All right. So uh, consistent with the matter of the time, if the leading Pharisee invited the distinguished teacher to his table as such, he undoubtedly treated him. Now, the question is a footnote there. All right, this references the passage in Luke 7:40. The question in Simon's mind was whether he was more than teacher, even prophet. And that such question rose within him indicates not only that Christ openly claimed a position different from that of rabbi and that his followers regarded him at least as a prophet, but also within the breast of Simon a struggle in which strong Jewish prejudice was bearing down the mighty impression of Christ's presence. And we discussed that. We discussed the struggle. Is this man a prophet? Is he not a prophet? And his eagerness, the first clue he gets to say, this man's not a prophet. So he invites him into his home and he's got the struggle going on. Is he a prophet or is he just a teacher? Because if he's just a teacher, I can pull him off. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an older teacher. I'm a better teacher. I've got more wisdom. You know, that the Pharisee could, could really 
uh, they had quite a pecking order amongst themselves and what school they followed, if they followed uh, Shammai or Hillel or, or what have you. If, if Jesus was just a teacher, then this Pharisee could put him in his place. If he was a prophet, then this Pharisee's in trouble. <laughs> All right? He has to submit to the authority of the prophet. And in the moment he has the chance to, uh, to say, this man's not a prophet, he jumps to that conclusion. See, and we all do it. We all have things that we think about, things that we anticipate, and then, you know, we're just looking. We're looking. And the first little bit of evidence we find, we can say, ha, I knew it. Well, were you really looking? Or you were just looking to justify what you'd already predetermined? They were all sitting, or rather lying. The Mishnah sometimes also calls it sitting down and leaning around the table, the body resting on the couch, the feet turned away from the table in the direction of the wall. And while the left elbow rested on the table, kind of like that, you know, and you're stretched out that way and your knees are bent, your feet are tucked behind you. Um, while the left elbow rested on the table and now from the open courtyard up the veranda step, perhaps through an antechamber and by the open door, past the figure of a woman into the festive reception room and dining hall. The Terraclin of the rabbis. In Latin, there was the triclinium. We call it today the dining room. How did she obtain access? Had she mingled with the servants or was access free to all? Or had she perhaps known the house and its owner? Now, I don't, I don't draw those rumors out. See, I don't know how this sinful woman, harlot or whatever she was, how she got into the house or how he knew who she was. Because he knew her. He knew her and he knew what she was. Edersheim, though, makes a bit of an insinuation there. Had she perhaps known the house and its owner? It little matters as little as whether she had been or was up to that day a sinner in the terrible acceptation of the term. But we must bear in mind the greatness of Jewish prejudice against any conversation with a woman. However lofty her character. Remember when he was at the well and the disciples came back with food and he was talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that? Remember when he asked her for a drink of water and she says, what are you talking to me for? And we have to bear in mind the greatness of Jewish prejudice against any conversation with a woman, however lofty her character, fully to realize the absolute incongruity on the part of such a woman in seeking access to the rabbi, whom so many regarded as the God-sent prophet. See, something caused her to go to him. Even though, if all he was was a teacher, if all he was, she'd, she'd have no business going to him because of the interaction that uh, did not take place between the genders of that culture. But she went to him because she understood he was not just simply a teacher, but she, he was the Christ. But this also is evidential that here we are far beyond the Jewish standpoint. To this woman, it was not incongruous because to her, Jesus had indeed been the prophet sent from God. We have said before that this story is a fragment, and here also, as in the invitation of Simon to Jesus, we have evidence of it. She had no doubt heard his words that day. What he had said would be in substance, if not in words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, ye shall find rest unto your souls. See, that's the message we just dealt with over in Matthew. 
This was to her, the prophet sent from God with the good news that opened even to her the kingdom of heaven and laid its yoke upon her, not bearing her down to very hell, but easy of wear and light of burden. She knew that it was all as he had said in regard to the heavy load of her past. And she listened to those words and looked on that presence. She learned to believe that it was all as he had promised to the heavy burdened. And she had watched and followed him afar off to the Pharisee's house. All right, then there's other issues there. The last one, and then we'll uh, dismiss you for the day, was McGee. Now, McGee took exception to the insinuation that Edersheim had here. This is McGee's book on Jesus, centerpiece of Scripture, chapter 7, when Jesus went out to dinner. And... Very quickly, the Lord Jesus had a reputation. He was subjected to criticism, of course, and the awful criticism of being called a gluttonous person and a wine bibber. Because I love some of the old King James terms, wine bibber. Um, but this was part of the criticism, part of the reputation. Uh, the awful criticism of being called a gluttonous person and a wine bibber because he went out to eat so often. What a contrast to John. And our Lord himself made the contrast. John was an austere man. The Lord Jesus was friendly. John was severe. Jesus was social. John was a solitary individual. The Lord Jesus was gregarious, constantly with people. Dr. Luke, in his gospel, gives us the record of two occasions when the Pharisees invited Jesus out to dinner. And it was always an exciting evening when he went out to dinner because he was the after-dinner speaker. He always did or said something unusual. But believe me, when he went into the home of a Pharisee, it was more unusual. In this message, we'll be looking at one of those occasions when he went to the home of a Pharisee, the home of Simon the Pharisee. Now, on the surface, it seemed to be friendly enough. Notice this, and he quotes from Luke 7:36. That seems friendly enough, does it not? But on closer examination, we shall do a little later, which we shall do a little later, we will see there was a lack of cordiality. In fact, there was an open display of hostility and animosity to our Lord on the part of Simon the Pharisee. Simon actually was insulting to the Lord, and he reminded him of it. It was the common custom in that day to provide water at the door to wash the feet of the guest. Simon had omitted this amenity. May I say to you, he was positively rude in so doing. Also, it was the custom for the host to greet the guest with a kiss. This Pharisee didn't do that. It was also the custom of the day for the host to provide oil for the head of the guest when he came in. Simon had deliberately omitted these common courtesies, which evidenced the hostility of this Pharisee toward our Lord and the events that followed bear it out. The question, of course, arises as to why this Pharisee invited the Lord Jesus in the first place. There have been many suggestions. I'll not attempt to mention them because, in my judgment, this one alone is satisfactory. The Pharisee sought an opportunity to accuse the Lord Jesus. This was a deliberate attempt to find some charge that could be made against our Lord. Now, I disagree with, with McGee on that. I think that it was a search, whether he was a legitimate prophet or not, but the eagerness was to disprove that he was a prophet. May I say to you, this is without doubt one of the worst breaches of common courtesy imaginable. An invitation to dinner is always considered a token of friendship, a display of warmth and intimacy. Yeah, I'm just going to have you over to my house so I can dig up some evidence against you. <laughs> When you go into the home of a host, you are under his protection. He should not only shield you from harm, he should shield you from every form of criticism. He is your friend. If it is otherwise, it becomes an awful betrayal. 
So this Pharisee had invited the Lord Jesus, but he invited him not to be friendly, but to seek something by which he could make a charge against him, and he wanted to find fault with him. See, that's the distinction. We talked last week about the nature of an invitation if you were inviting a superior or if you were inviting an inferior in the two different modes. And it was clear that the Pharisee was inviting Jesus as an inferior. In other words, doing Jesus a favor for having him in his home. Now, the next question arises, why did our Lord go? (laughs) Why did he go? Would you accept an invitation like this? Well, why did he go to the cross? Why did he have Judas Iscariot as a a, uh, a, uh, disciple? Would you accept an invitation like this into the home of one you knew was not your friend? Would you go if you knew you were going to be laid open to every form of criticism? Yet our Lord went. He wanted to win that hard, cold, calculating, critical Pharisee as much as he wanted to win that woman who was a sinner. The Pharisee's home that he went to into was as unattractive to Christ as the brothel out of which she had come. Did you catch that? This Pharisee's home was just as unattractive as that woman's brothel. And our Lord would have been as much at home in that brothel as he was in the home of the Pharisee. But don't be disturbed by that. He left heaven's glory and came down to an unfriendly world, a world that crucified him, and he came down because he wanted to save. So it is that our Lord goes into the home of this Pharisee to try with, to win him. And I think he did, although I have no basis for that other than the events that unfold. See, I disagree with McGee on that. Look for a moment at our host, Simon the Pharisee. Actually, I think he's probably one of the most unattractive fellows you could possibly meet. I don't think he would want to go uh, to his home for dinner. And uh, other things there. I think that's the extent he relates it to the Pharisee in his prayer life in Luke 18. And then he describes this woman. Anyway, I would encourage you, if you don't have uh, McGee's book on this, Centerpiece of Scripture is what it's called. Jesus, the Centerpiece of Scripture, Chapter 7 is the uh, chapter that we were just reading from. All right. Any questions, any thoughts on this episode? We'll move on to episode 22, I'm sorry, 23 next week, another tour of Galilee, followed by the uh, the accusation of blasphemy that takes place, and we're going to have to deal with that. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. Father, we thank you for this passage and for the reminder that, that uh, our forgiveness is a grace gift. We rejoice in the work that was done on our behalf. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it ahead of time, at the time, or afterwards. But, Father, we can certainly respond to it in, uh, in the love that's then motivated. And uh, we can uh, portray our faith for all who would observe. We thank you for this uh, tremendous principle and for the encouragement and comfort it brings. We ask for your blessing upon us as we go forth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.